Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at your local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, from 1985. This movie was directed by Danny Steinman, who's best known for this movie. Stars John Shepard as Tommy, with a cameo by Corey Feldman as his younger self. Melanie Kinneman as Pam. Richard Young as Dr. Matthew Letter. Shavar Ross as Reggie. John Robert Dixon as Eddie. Debbie Sue Voorhees, no relation, as Tina. Dominic Brascia as Joey Burns. Mark Venturini as Vic. Tiffany Helm as Violet, Jerry Pavlon as Jake, Juliette Cummins as Robin, Tom Morga and John Hawk as Jason slash other hockey mask killer, and Dick Weand as Roy Burns. If you're not hearing a lot of other credits in that listing, it's because there really aren't that many. Mark Venturini was suicide in the cult classic Return of the Living Dead, and Richard Young has a certain claim to fame as the man who gave Indiana Jones his famous fedora in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but this film wasn't exactly a stepping stone for anyone in it to a bigger career. In fact, it probably acted as an obstacle. Uh, many of them didn't even know it was Friday the 13th when they took the roles. The film was presented to them under the title Rep- Repetition to in order to escape the reputation the series had developed by that point. It was kind of a career killer. Music is by Harry Manfredini, who does admit that by this point he was mostly scoring it with music he'd stockpiled from the previous film, so it's going to sound very similar tonally to anyone who's seen the previous ones. Special effects by Martin Becker, who also worked on part three as well as several other movies. The film begins with probably its strongest scene as we open on young Tommy Jarvis walking through the woods on a dark and stormy night. Now this was actually shot in the backyard of Feldman's house. He was busy doing the Goonies at the time and he couldn't get away to do studio shooting so they sent a unit to his house over the weekend to take care of it. Uh, He approaches a graveyard where a crude wooden headstone marks the location of Jason Voorhees' remains, but he's forced to hide when a pair of grave-robbing curiosity seekers show up to exhume the corpse. As you can imagine, it goes very badly for them. The two men have only a moment to examine Jason's worm-covered body before a machete, and I do mean, by the way, it's worm-covered. Like, they put some worms on the mask to crawl dramatically into the eye holes, but also there's just this, like, big pile of worms on his chest that look very clearly like they dumped a bucket of worms on him. I, I can't complain about any of this for reasons that will become readily apparent, but it is unintentionally amusing. Uh, Anyway, a machete stabs out from the grave into the stomach of one of the grave robbers, a knife goes into the other one's throat, then Jason rises to his feet, impossibly alive, and stares right at Tommy's hiding place, and you know he sees him. He pulls the machete out of his victim's body and comes closer and closer. Tommy is paralyzed by fear, unable to save himself. The machete rises into the air as Tommy whimpers, No, no, no! But as it comes down, we see it's all a dream. 
the real Tommy, now a young adult, wakes up in the back of a van from the Unger Institute of Mental Health, where he's being transferred to a new facility as the credits roll. This means we've jumped ahead, by the way. Part 1 took place in 1979, as established by Pamela Voorhees' Headstone. Parts 2 through 4, Part 2 took place five years later, but Parts 2, 3, and 4 took place over the course of like a single weekend. So that caught the series up to the then-present day of 1984. And now we've jumped at least six or seven years. There's not an exact date, and Shepard is probably playing younger than his actual age. But even if it's just six or seven years, we're into the 1990s. This is 92 or 93. Now, obviously, they couldn't anticipate the 90s, but it does make the lack of internet weirdly anachronistic and means that goth punk teen, new wave goth punk teen Violet is officially the most retro-looking character in the series history. The credits, by the way, look especially low-budget this time out, with a new beginning looking like it was just typed onto the screen in a pretty ordinary font. Now, getting back to the dream sequence, this is actually a pretty compelling way to start the movie. The problem is, it gives the audience exactly what they want just before it yanks it away from them. Lots of people went into this film wanting to know how Jason could possibly come back from his brutal demise. They wanted the scene where he crawls out of the grave to begin his killing anew. This is actually in the trailers. It's like the trailer sequence is seeing Corey Feldman, see Jason climb out of the grave and start killing people again. And it's like, I'm sure a lot of people were very excited about that. In fact, you can tell, because when they did part six, they just went straight to this idea. They jumped right back to it and went, yep, we're taking the dream sequence and we're more or less making it the actual movie. Um, a lot of people probably wanted to see Corey Feldman come back as a recurring protagonist. He was just hitting the peak of his celebrity in 1985. To set all that up, then just sweep it all away as a dream sequence, it, it probably left a bad taste in many filmgoers' mouths even before the action began. After the credits, the van pulls up to the Pinehurst Youth Development Center, a sort of farm-slash-halfway house out in the middle of the countryside. Uh, you can see chickens, there's a backhoe going, there's all sorts of, there's a barn, there's all sorts of farm-like activity. Now, as to which countryside? Good question. This film does less than any of the others to establish itself in Crystal Lake or indeed in any particular location. You may remember me commenting in part four that they've left behind the actual Crystal Lake after parts one and two, the, the lake that the movies were filmed at, to shoot all of this stuff in California where it's cheaper and closer to production facilities. And this one... It looks California-ish, vaguely, but they don't really bother with any kind of explanation as to where they were. There's no establishing shots. There's no welcome to Crystal Lake signs. The cop car just says county sheriff on it. It could really be anywhere. And indeed, there's no reason for it to be anywhere in particular. Uh, it, it looks like Chris's family farm from part three greatly renovated, but nobody ever mentions, oh, this is where those murders took place the weekend that you're... Oh, gosh, Tommy, I'm sorry. You know, there's no conversation like that. We may not even be in New Jersey. 
and since there's no Jason, and hence no Jason's Woods, as they kept calling them in the trailers, there's no reason for this to be in Crystal Lake. Now, it's worth mentioning that uh, Tommy's transfer from Unger to Pinehurst, wherever Unger is and wherever Pinehurst is, would have been very topical at the time. Although it's anyone's guess whether the filmmakers were intentionally picking up on a significant development in mental health that was getting national attention, or simply picking up the zeitgeist and running with it. By the way, there's probably going to be some unavoidable discussion of mental health issues in this episode, because we are talking about a movie set at a mental institution, we are talking about a character who's explicitly given a diagnosis, we are going to be talking about someone who, according to the film itself, has a psychotic break. A psychotic break in the clinical sense of losing his ability to distinguish between reality and, and hallucinations. This is unavoidable because of the nature of the film, but I do want to give a trigger warning. I will try as hard as possible to avoid ableist language about mental health, but I will be discussing some clinical terms and some diagnoses, and discussing the diagnosis of fictional characters. Again, that's just unavoidable given the subject matter. I understand if it makes you uncomfortable and you want to skip this episode, that's okay. So during the 50s and 60s, a variety of social reformers picked up on the intolerable conditions in many mental health institutions it wasn't just that the conditions themselves were bad. The laws surrounding mental health were really terrible. There were a number of people who were committed against their will, who were committed for things that were not necessarily mental illnesses, and you couldn't really get out of the system once you were in it. And they began a movement known as deinstitutionalization, or the remanding of patients from institutions that were inpatient to outpatient facilities like Pinehurst as depicted in the movie, places where you could leave if you needed to. You could come and go as you pleased. You would go there to get medication and then you would go back to your home, or maybe you would stay there for a little while as needed. It wasn't it was intended to prevent some of the abuses of the old system. However, although Pinehurst is going to be what we'll call a uh, cinematic depiction of the problems places like this has, or had, well, had and have, uh, it's nonetheless true that there weren't really the kind of resources needed to care for a massive influx of people with serious mental illnesses at outpatient facilities, and many folks with severe conditions, to say nothing of a dependency on care, once you get into that kind of a system, there is an institutionalization effect that takes place much in the same way that they talk about people who are in jail feel uncomfortable when they get outside simply because they're so used to the specific structure and routine of being in prison. Most of these people, well, most of these people wound up getting back to some form of a life, but a lot of them wound up on the streets without the assistance that they needed. Between 1955 and 2016, the number of available spaces in inpatient mental institutions dropped by 95%. And sadly, many of the people who needed serious treatment fell in between the cracks and wound up in jail instead of in a hospital. There's actually a spike in crime rates because people were being released 
without the care they needed. They were being arrested for offenses like vagrancy, for trying to self-medicate with drugs, for a number of things that were just them trying to cope with their problems, and wound up being absorbed into the prison system instead of into the mental health system. So you just substitute one type of forced institutionalization for another, and the second type has much less care for them. Now, 95, or excuse me, 85, I was almost thinking when this was set instead of when it came out, was kind of a critical period in this phenomenon when it was becoming increasingly obvious to everyone that we were seeing a crisis in the system. And so it's entirely unsurprising that we get a story about Tommy as a patient who's remanded to the care of a facility that's frankly more than a little shambolic. Spoilers. So, getting back to Tommy himself, he is dropped off by oily sleazebag Billy, the van driver, who will show up later for some reason, and Pam shows him to Dr. Letter's office. Tommy's very uncomfortable with his surroundings, he's having difficulty finding the ability to speak, he's very tied up, very knotted up, very tense. John Shepard plays this part very well. You can see on his face. He's not caricaturing Tommy's mental illness. He did some research for the part, and he is trying to depict someone who is not good with people, who is nervous, who's suffering from anxiety, and who is not being given the care he needs. The staff, such as they are, try to make him feel welcome by promising him expanded freedoms, they tell him they don't have guards, no one's going to force him to go to bed at a certain time or tell him where he needs to be. They call it an honor system, but it really just feels like they don't have the ability to provide these things, and Tommy looks like he's unhappy about not having a routine to follow. They, Case in point, they just point him to his room and let him go while they discuss the particulars of his case. Weirdly, when they look at his file, there's no diagnosis to speak of. They mention that he killed Jason, and they mention that he's on a lot of meds, but they don't say what he's actually being treated for. It would probably be considered PTSD by today's standards. Tommy does experience multiple flashbacks and hallucinations about his trauma over the course of the movie. He's emotionally numb, which again, it sounds like a slam on Shepard, but he is trying to give a performance of someone who is emotionally deadened by serious PTSD. And he's definitely, as we'll find out, on a hair trigger when it comes to violence. Now, in... 1985, they might not have diagnosed that as PTSD. That diagnosis really only came into existence in the clinical sense of being added to the DSM in 1980, and it was mostly considered a diagnosis for soldiers, people who were at war. It came out of a lot of studies on World War II, Korea, Vietnam. I'm not necessarily sure that they would have recognized that it was happening to Tommy based on what happened to him. An important clarification, by the way, not all PTSD sufferers are violent. Many are not. In fact, most are not. However, they do... The, the One of the elements of the diagnosis is that inability to control emotional responses to trauma, uh, triggers that, res that remind people of the trauma. So in Tommy's case, that does take the form of violence because, of course, it is a movie and they're not known necessarily for sensitive depictions of mental health. Speaking of hair trigger when it comes to violence, Tommy gets back to his room and immediately pulls a pocket knife out of his bag 
and hides it under his mattress, this is a clear sign that he's resourceful and capable of some serious forward planning, because it's not like he found this at the, at the Pinehurst facility. He's had this since the mental hospital and has managed to keep it concealed from the guards. He goes to put away his clothes in the closet, where Reggie, grandson of the institution's cook, is hiding with a giant rubber spider. Again, this seems like a very poorly run institution if they're allowing kids to wander around supervised and play pranks on people with anxiety disorders. One might even call this cruel, although obviously that's a lot of moral weight to place on Reggie himself. He's a kid, he's not the one who needs to be putting a stop to this kind of behavior, the staff is. He doesn't mean harm by it. He's chuckling, he talks about how he's not afraid of anything, and Tommy, just to kind of give him a little hint that he is still well traumatized and, and dealing with PTSD, still the person we knew back then, leans over his bag, comes back up wearing one of his homemade monster masks, and groars. And, of course, Reggie, who has just been boasting about how fearless he is, is shocked and startled by it. They do bond a little hesitantly over the masks. Once Reggie realizes that Tommy made them himself, he's very impressed with them. But their interaction is interrupted by the arrival of the police. Said police are bringing in Eddie and Tina, two other residents of the facility. We never really get a proper introduction to the characters. There's not a scene where Tommy is given a tour by... Dr. Letterin is told, here are the people you'll be staying with, which seems like a bit of a missed opportunity, but we do pick it up. From context, uh, Eddie and Tina were caught having sex on a neighbor's property. Said neighbor, Ethel Hubbard, then pulls up with her son on his motorcycle and threatens to kill anyone who shows up outside her house in future. This is, I guess, meant to play as humorous in that She's demonizing the inhabitants of the facility as mentally ill, but she is clearly, you know, constantly angry. She's claiming she's got a bomb on her and will blow herself up if the sheriff gets too close. There's a lot of uncomfortable humor about mental illness presented as ironic because she dislikes mentally ill people. It's not comfortable. It's kind of mean-spirited. Ethel and her son, Junior, are caricatures, or that kind of rural, grotesque people who, you know, fit all of the stereotypes of, of rural individuals in nasty ways. None of this ever pays off, by the way. Ethel and her son do not wind up getting into any kind of conflict with the with the inhabitants of the institution. There's not a scene where they need to go to her for help, and it's tense because she might hurt them. It, it's just, they're just there to be unpleasant people that can be killed off later. That's really it. After the kids are returned, everyone goes back to chores. Violet and Robin are hanging laundry out to dry while Vic is chopping wood. And it has to be said, his technique is terrible. He's not splitting the logs lengthwise, top to bottom. He's chopping through the middle like he is trying to chop down the tree again. It's no wonder he's getting frustrated. Uh, really, if someone had just taught him how to chop wood properly, none of this movie would have happened, and I'm only partially kidding there. Joey, who's very much treated as a fat-shaming stereotype, complete with pockets full of candy and chocolate-stained fingers, 
offers to help the young woman with their chores and is rebuffed after he gets chocolate on the sheets because ha ha ha, fat people can't control their appetites, fat people can't stop from getting messy things all over everything because they're slobs and it's just, this is a horrible scene. This is, I mean, even before what's going to happen, this is a horrible scene and Joey is treated badly. Uh, he's actually pretty sweet in a dumb and silly sort of way, and he goes over to Vic to try to offer him some candy, and Vic chops it in half with the axe, and he politely, by his standard, well, politely by anyone's standards, really says, look, I have to say, you're being out of line here. And as he turns to leave, Vic just hauls off and chops him right in the back with the axe. And again, we have to say, this seems like a huge failure on the part of the Pinehurst staff, to say the least. They have a patient who is prone to violent outbursts, who is incredibly wound up, who is violent, and he's chopping things with a sharp axe, unsupervised. Why does he even have an axe? Why do they have axes out without anybody watching them? Do you really hand out axes to people on the honor system? This just seems like an obvious flaw, and and I don't think it's meant to be a commentary on the problems with outpatient mental institutions in the 80s. I think it's just one of those blind spots that this movie has about mental health where they just kind of assume that they don't have to make these kinds of explanations. They've got people uh, with mental health issues, and they've got axes, and obviously this is just a thing that's going to happen. It's, again, this is a, a movie that is not particularly respectful to, to people with mental illness. The next thing we see, we don't, by the way, see the body getting hacked up. This is a movie that is really trying to skirt that MPAA line by never actually showing any graphic violence, but showing lots of the results of graphic violence. Uh, the next thing we see is the police showing up to take Vic away. We see him in the cop car sitting there. He apparently did not proceed on to Robin or Violet or anybody else. He just chopped Joey until... He was stopped. Um, we don't see them stopping him either. We don't know whether they tackled him, shot him with a tranquilizer dart, whatever. Uh, but the police then ask Dr. Letter about next of kin to notify. Joey does not have any. His mother died in childbirth. No one knows who the father was. But ambulance driver Roy Burns seems more shocked on seeing the corpse and more upset with his co-ambulance driver, who is, of course, that very stereotypical morgue attendant type of, oh, what, you can't handle shockingly gory scenes? I'm hardened, and I'm used to that. Um, he, he seems more shocked than he should, even given the mutilated state. And Okay, let's, let's talk about this, because, spoilers aside, this is pretty much the inciting incident for the rest of the movie. What we're told at the end is that Joey is actually Roy's son, and he carried a very current photo of Joey in the wallet, like it looks like the actor's headshot for this film, despite never having direct contact with the young man for his entire sad life. Which, fair enough, maybe he's got a family who would disapprove of him acknowledging his son, but it does make Joey's story even sadder to know that his dad is keeping an eye on him, but not in any way that meaningfully helps him. We're also told that 
Roy quote-unquote snapped when he saw Joey's death and started killing people disguised as Jason. But why Jason? I mean, he had some newspaper clippings about Jason in his wallet, which is more or less just to make the exposition dump at the end neat and tidy, but did he always carry those around? Was he some sort of true crime enthusiast who retreated into the Jason persona as a way of reconciling his homicidal impulses with his personal moral compass? Or was this meant to be a deliberate, conscious attempt to get revenge for his son's death by murdering Pinehurst staff and patients? If so, it does seem a little unfair that Vic, his son's actual murderer, is the only one who survives until the very end. And was he planning to pin it all on Tommy because Tommy was obsessed with Jason and had problems with violent impulses? If that's the case, why does he murder so many people who aren't involved with Pinehurst? If that's not the case, why does he go so far into premeditation as to make a Jason mask for himself to wear under the hockey mask to make himself look more like Jason? Now, you could point out, and rightfully so, that it doesn't matter too much what Roy's motives are, but it should. The screenwriter should have made a choice and stuck with it, and they should have used Roy's character and his choices as a lever to move the story. Instead, it has to be said, the whole thing feels very inconsistent, with motivation shifting and mutating whenever a new kill scene is needed. Speaking of, we jump ahead to that evening where Pete and Vinny, a pair of greasers, have developed car trouble on their way to a date with two women whom they refer to with gendered slurs. They argue with each other for a bit in that male dominance, alpha, beta nonsense sort of way. They split up for a moment to go into the woods and go to the bathroom. One of them gets killed with a road flare shoved in his mouth, which is one of the few modestly visually inventive kills in the movie, but it's very brief. And it's also very oddly shot, because the one who's killed with the road flare is like, is that you? Blah, blah, blah. I don't even remember which one is which, because they're that disposable as characters. And... He's, like, looking at a guy holding a source of illumination, apparently wearing a hockey mask, and he's like, is that you, my friend? No, it's it's not him. It's the guy who's gonna kill you. The point is, is they both get brutally murdered in a scene that feels like exactly what it is. An act of violence added to the movie just to give the audience what they want, supposedly, a high body count and some gruesome special effects sequences. Which, apart from anything else, the movie doesn't really have. The MPAA forced so many cuts to this film that several scenes are truncated so badly that it's difficult to tell except by interpolation what's happening to people. It's... they fail as set pieces. Back at Pinehurst the next morning, Tommy is having more flashbacks to the end of part four. He takes some pills, but they don't prevent him from seeing Jason at the mirror and through the window. This really feels like it could have been the core of a more courageous movie. Tommy is having hallucinations, he's having difficulty controlling his responses to threats, and someone is killing people while dressed as Jason, although weirdly we haven't seen that at this point in the movie. Only the killer's hands were shown, which is odd given that there's more mystery if we see the hockey mask than if we don't. 
There's a lot of possibility for gaslighting and psychological horror here, with Tommy being convinced that he may be the killer, with someone trying to gaslight him into thinking that he is and framing that he's one. But ultimately, they seem to be too afraid of making something outside the series' wheelhouse to commit to the idea. Which is a shame, because they're already outside the series' wheelhouse by not including Jason. Downstairs, folks get ready for breakfast. Reggie wants to visit his brother, Demon. I have to assume that's a nickname, or his parents were really pigeonholing his future in life. And Violet accidentally sets a place for Vic and Joey and is mortified by her mistake. Dr. Letter gives a speech to the group that more or less amounts to, yep, two of you witnessed a murder, and that was probably really traumatic on top of your mental health issues that put you here. That's rough, huh? Anyway, let's eat! He is, it has to be said, a fucking terrible doctor. Tommy comes in, followed not far after with a wild roar by a monster-masked Eddie. Eddie has stolen one of Tommy's masks and uses it to play a prank on him, but the joke kind of turns to be on turns out to be on Eddie. Tommy picks him up and power bombs him through a side table, unable to differentiate between a prank and a threat after his previous hallucinations. Dr. Letter calms him down. But again, the film doesn't really want to seem to commit to its characters. In fact, it doesn't really want to commit to any scene. There's a lot of jump cutting between random incidents at a speed that I'd say many of the scenes in this are less than a minute long. It's very frenetic in its pacing. And we jump over to Ethel and Junior Hubbard and to a drifter who comes to their property looking for a job. This is a scene that doesn't really set up anything except for the existence of another potential victim, and it doesn't really pay off anything previously set up. It's just there to seem to be a bunch of, again, really nasty jokes about the rural poor. Meanwhile, the police find the body of the greasers, and again, you'll hear a lot of meanwhiles, and jump back at the farm, and next night, and it's just so frenetic and, and disjointed, almost. Meanwhile, as I say, the police find the bodies of the greasers and call the ambulance to deal with them in a scene that feels vaguely like it might have been the inspiration for Deputy Dewey's character in Scream. They're all clearly out of their depth when it comes to the murderers, even though we know that Roy didn't wear gloves when he killed the two men, they don't even appear to dust for prints. The action then jumps ahead to Nightfall, where Billy, the van driver from the beginning, goes to pick up his girlfriend at the diner where she works. Now, as I noted in some of the previous movies, especially Part 3, the later entries of these series increasingly include characters who are there mainly to be unsympathetic so that we can enjoy the kill sequences without any real moral qualms about the end of a life and the sadness that might bring. This is no exception. Billy is loud, he's rude to his girlfriend, and he's coked to the gills. Lana, the waitress he's dating, seems much nicer, but... By this point, the films have kind of bought fully and uncritically into the sex-equals-death trope, so she's kind of doomed just for flashing the mirror when she changes clothes, which is also a gratuitous nude scene in a film that, again, it feels exploitative in a way that the previous ones didn't. It's hard not to feel like this movie is insulting your intelligence and your ethics when it gives you what it thinks you're looking for. There's a lot of contempt for the audience, is I think what I'm getting at here. There's a quick, pointless jump scare that involves throwing another cat, poor thing, before Billy is murdered, followed by Lana. 
As with the previous two killings, this makes no sense in light of the killer's ostensible motives. Again, is Roy just randomly killing? If that's the case, why does he keep going back to Pinehurst? Is he trying to kill the Pinehurst kids? If that's the case, why does he keep going after these people? This all takes up time that could have been used developing the core cast, too, so that if they do die, or when they do die, it is this kind of movie, we would care about it. When people talk about cardboard-thin characters getting bumped off at five-minute intervals in slasher movies, this is the kind of film they're thinking about. The next day, Tommy sees Eddie and Tina running past his window and giggling, and not long after that, he sees Jason. Again, a more intelligent movie might have played up the idea that he sees Jason as a premonition of impending deaths, maybe added a supernatural angle to it, but this movie doesn't have the attention span for it. It instead jumps directly after a scene that is less than a minute to a conversation between the mayor and the sheriff who are arguing about the case. The mayor is, of course, in the time-honored tradition of his part in these kinds of movies, demanding quicker action from the police, while the sheriff thinks the killer is... Jason? Why? What leads him to think this? Is Are we still even in Crystal Lake? Is there a reason that he might think it's Jason? If he does think it's Jason, what's his grounds? Why don't you include shots of the hockey mask killer so that people can believe him to be Jason? Why would you set up something like this so inexpertly with so little grounds? It just feels like they want to remind everyone, hey, remember those other movies with Jason in them? Those were out there. Uh, incidentally, the mayor does say that Jason's been cremated, which seems both A, a very sensible course of action, and B, to contradict everything else we see in every other movie. It makes the scene an even odder choice, since it could have been completely excised and creates some doubt about whether or not Jason is dead after all. But don't. No, He's dead and cremated, and the sheriff somehow believes it's him, even though there's no reason to do so. It's, it's a baffling sequence. Back at Pinehurst, Eddie and Tina sneak off into the woods around the Hubbard farm to smoke dope and have sex. That's the honor system at work there. They've snuck recreational drugs onto the... Uh, into the facility, and again, this is not me saying that recreational drugs are bad and shouldn't be used, I'm just saying clearly someone is not doing their job if the kids are able to get recreational drugs this easily. The drifter from earlier watches them have sex, but then he's killed, then Tina's killed, then Eddie's killed. All of the murders are very perfunctory, and again, the difficulties with the MPAA mean they're cut together so hastily that it's hard to even follow the action, let alone appreciate the artistry of special effects at work. And since we haven't gotten to know really any of the characters, it's hard to care about them when they die. And that's not to say that I cared an enormous amount about the characters in the last couple movies. Okay, I, I did care about the characters in Part 4. I was surprised by how much I cared about the characters in Part 4. But Part 3, they were very disposable victims. But at least those deaths worked as set pieces. There was a certain amount of visual flair to them and energy that went into doing something inventive and innovative with special effects that hadn't really been done before to create something vivid and memorable. 
these killings feel rote and obligatory. It's mostly just stabbings with a couple of decapitations here and there to show that they at least know how to do a silicone head mold. Really, Eddie's death and the, the road flare deaths are the only mildly inventive ones, and I don't even think Eddie's death is physically possible. Roy ties him to a tree with a leather strap, then twists it until it digs into his skull and kills him. I would think the leather would stretch or snap before it dug in like that, but I, I could be wrong. I'm not going to go test it. In any event, as night falls, Tam, uh, Pam takes Reggie to visit his brother, bringing Tommy along because Dr. Letter thinks a trip to visit strangers will do him good. This is yet another exhibit in the Dr. Letter is actually a pretty terrible doctor theory. He and George, Reggie's grandfather, go off to look for Eddie and Tina, and while I am glad there's a little more representation of African Americans in this movie, it's still in the role of servants, the products of broken homes, and guys who live out of their van. Spoilers. The music becomes bizarrely and bewilderingly melodramatic as they approach the trailer park, but it's really just an ordinary trailer park with nothing much happening. Demon turns out to be a very 80s cinematic street hustler type, as much a character as the gang bangers from part three, and just as awkward. Uh, he's got a Michael Jackson-inspired look and a girlfriend named Anita, who looks a lot like Ola Ray in the Thriller video, so, you know, you can kind of tell where they're tracking their inspirations from. There's a cute scene where they all hang out together for a little while, and Reggie clearly hero-worships his brother, who is just as clearly kind of a loser. Uh, but Tommy wanders off unsupervised because this is literally the worst mental institution ever. He runs into Junior Hubbard, who acts all menacing and pushes him around until Tommy gets pretty much sick of it and beats the crap out of him. Now, it's got to be said, John Shepard really does work a lot harder than the role requires of him, especially in scenes like this one. You can see the tension boiling under the surface as he tries to keep his cool and fails, and even the fact that the fight scenes are done by a very obvious stunt double who looks to be probably some 20 years older than him don't detract from the intensity of the scene. Tommy runs off into the night after the fight, and Pam takes Reggie back to Pinehurst to drop him off before going back to find Tommy. Now, it should be noted, that is not really explained at all. It looks like Tommy just runs off, and then they just leave without him. And then once she drops him off, she just leaves without Reggie, and it's not really clear where she's going. There's no scenes explaining this, but when you watch it enough times, which you really don't want to do, believe me, it does become clearer. Uh, this is, of course, this Friday the 13th movie, though, so before we follow Pam and Reggie and Tommy and all of the characters we are actually ostensibly being told to care about, we stick around with Demon and Anita for a few minutes of bathroom-inspired humor and some threats of domestic violence and some weird singing that's just ooh, baby, baby, hey, baby, baby, back and forth to each other. And then, of course, they both get murdered by Roy, who we still haven't seen. 
it's so odd to make the decision to have a Jason-inspired killer whose only interesting feature is his resemblance to Jason, and who goes out of his way to look just like Jason while he kills people like Jason kills people in order to make people suspect that Jason is back, and they never show him looking like Jason. It is the most odd attempt to create suspense, and it's completely misplaced. Pam leaves Reggie with Robin, Jake, and Violet, even though George and Matt haven't returned, which is yet another example of Pinehurst's many problems as an institution, and she goes looking for Tommy. We then cut back to the Hubbards. Junior has just gotten back and is screaming and driving around on his motorcycle in a scene that is just frankly the visual equivalent of fingernails on a blackboard, and... He's talking about how they hurt him, specifically they in this case, is Tommy, and he wants his mom to murder them, and it's just very much this, like I say, rural grotesque. And then Roy decapitates Junior and kills Ethel in a scene that is so badly edited that it's almost impossible to tell what happened to her just by looking at it. She's looking straight ahead, and then there's a scene of a window breaking and a fist coming through with a meat cleaver, and then her eyes widen, and then she crushes a tomato, and then the meat cleaver withdraws, and then she falls face first into the pot, and then she's still holding the tomato, and it is the opposite of Psycho. It is the opposite of that scene that is so beautifully edited that even though the knife is never actually shown going into Janet Lee's body. You're convinced it is. This is the opposite. You are convinced that this woman must not have gotten hurt at all, but it, it, it almost feels like she refused to be in the same scene as the meat cleaver because they had a grudge or something. It's just bewilderingly bad. In any event, we cut back to Pam, whose truck breaks down and she has to walk back to Pinehurst. Meanwhile, Jake and Robin are watching A Place in the Sun together while Reggie sleeps on the couch. Now, A Place in the Sun is a movie... I, I did have to look this up. I didn't know this off the top of my head. But it's a movie starring Montgomery Clift as a man who is seeking a better station in life and trying to angle his way into a relationship with a woman who's socially well-connected, but his actual girlfriend winds up getting pregnant, and he murders her. The girlfriend is Shelley Winters. The scene they're watching is the lead-up to the murder, and Jake takes that exact moment to tell Robin he'd really like to have sex with her, which is just one of those, like, dude, read-the-room situations. Robin responds to his proposition by bursting into laughter, and I mean fairly lengthy laughter. It's not just like a little inadvertent chuckle. She goes on for a while, and Jake runs out of the room with hurt feelings, which, fair enough, I think anybody's feelings would be hurt in that situation. Uh, the scene did, though, remind me of the famous quote from Margaret Atwood, men are afraid that women will laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them. As it turns out, Jake should probably have worried about both scenarios as he's killed by Roy not long afterward. It's worth noting that, like many of the kills in the movie, Jake is surprised by the killer standing directly in front of him. Like, he just looks and all of a sudden, <gasps> and then he gets killed. 
it's not just poor peripheral vision like in some of the earlier movies, it's some sort of object permanence issue at this point. I, I mean, I joke, but it's it's just really the direction doesn't make it clear where characters are in relation to each other. They don't make it clear who characters are. And again, I'm not expecting them to show that this is Roy, but it should at least show that it's Roy pretending to be Jason. The whole suspense is who is pretending to be Jason, but we don't know that it's Jason. Robin is Roy's next victim. She goes to bed as the thunderstorm outside starts up and finds Jake's corpse lying, corpse lying in bed with her just before Roy stabs her from below. There is absolutely no way to parse out the visual logic of this sequence, and I'm frankly not going to try. Given the layout of the bunk bed that she sleeps on the top bunk of, she must have literally climbed right past Roy and stared right at Jake, rolled over, gone to sleep, rolled back, seen Jake, and then reacted. It is... It's staggeringly incompetent editing and directing from just the standpoint of physically figuring out what is going on in the movie. Moving on. <laughs> Tiffany Helm, as Violet, at least gets to do some really quite excellent robot dancing before Roy shows up and kills her. I like to imagine that everyone was told they could create their own character to some extent, and she was the only one who put any work into it. She's got a clearly defined visual aesthetic, she's got a routine, it's a gimmick, she's got headphones on all the time and constantly has to be reminded to take them off before she can participate in a conversation. Her room is even decorated more interestingly than everybody else. It's like she's the only one who's really trying, except of course for John Shepard as Tommy. And it's kind of sweet. Um, but yeah, at least she's the one person that it makes sense for Roy to be able to sneak up on because she's got her music so loud. She also gets stabbed. Again, none of the killings are interesting in this movie. None of them are anything other than, oh, I guess we need to have a killing here. Reggie wakes up on the couch, decides to go up to bed, and finds his room occupied by three corpses. And this is yet another way that the movie undermines itself. In the original Friday the 13th, there was a very lengthy lull in the movie between the killing of Annie in the woods and all of the other deaths that happen, so there's this sense of gradually building tension as you know there's somebody out there watching them and something's going to happen, and then all of a sudden the murders just go off like a string of fireworks. But in this one, there's been a murder every five minutes. We've barely gotten to know any of the ostensibly major characters because we keep chumping away to focus on side characters whose only purpose in the movie is to get killed. And so there's not really a shock to any of these killings. It's just like, oh, yeah, yep, that's another killing. Uh-huh, that's another killing. Uh-huh, that's another killing. Reggie backs out to find Pam waiting for him, and he can't even bring himself to tell her what happened. He's just in, in the room, in the room. This leads to a sort of weird repeated beat of Pam going into the exact same room, seeing the exact same bodies, and having the exact same reaction before the two of them attempt to flee. But just as they get into the living room, Roy literally bursts through the door like Jason in part four, just Kool-Aid style smashes it down, and we get our first good look at this movie's hockey mask killer. And, you know, he, he looks like Jason. 
the suspense was completely unnecessary because he looks just like Jason. He's even got the bald head. He's even got the, you know, unusual shape to his ears that looks like he's had them bitten. He's just Jason. I don't know why they felt like they needed to conceal this to the end because it's literally the selling point of the film is that someone is dressing like Jason and doing what Jason does. I'm really going to get over this someday, I swear I am. <laughs> Pam and Reggie run to the back door, run out of the house, run into the woods, run through the woods, run out to the road, run to the ambulance they see parked by the side of the road, and have just enough time to find the dead body of Roy's partner before Roy shows up. In front of them. Like, he stands up from behind the car. I'm sorry, but there's absolutely nothing short of teleportation that can explain this sequence of events. Just from a screenwriting standpoint, from a film editing standpoint, there's no way these things should have gotten through an editor. There's no way these things there's no way these things would happen if anyone was saying, "Hold on, let's think this through." They turn around and run all the way back to the house, getting split up along the way, and uh, Pam finds the body of Dr. Letter pinned to a tree in the course of her flight. She makes it back to the house, closes the back door, apparently forgetting that the front door has been demolished, and suddenly George's body comes flying through the window in what is at this point a motif for the series. Pam responds by running outside, only to trip and fall as Roy chases her. She can't get up because, um, she forgot how? It's not a great moment for feminism here. When they do the joke years later in Behind the Mask about how the killer appears to be walking, but he keeps catching up to people who are running in a full-on sprint because they keep looking behind them, tripping, falling, and not getting back up, this is almost exactly the scene they're parodying. But just as he's about to catch up with her and kill her, Reggie bursts out of the barn, driving the backhoe, and rams Roy with it, apparently killing him. They take a good look at his body, but of course he takes that moment to get up, and they flee into the barn to escape. Bleeding, Roy pursues. He hears a noise from the feed stall, and when he goes to investigate, Pam bursts out wielding a chainsaw in an apparent effort to make up for her earlier unable-to-walk embarrassment. She gets in a few good slashes and injures his left arm, but the saw stalls out and she's forced to just throw it at him and flee into the hayloft with Reggie. Just then, Tommy enters the barn, which is totally a waste of the one interesting plot point this entire section of the film has going for it, the question of whether or not Tommy is the killer. Tommy's run off, now people are getting killed by a mysterious killer who's imitating Jason's M.O.? Why aren't they making a big deal out of this? Why aren't they saying, oh, this person's wearing a latex mask to look like Jason, and we all know who makes masks, don't we? Nope, nope, Tommy just sort of wanders in like, hey guys, film's been happening without me, right? Again, this is, this is water over the bridge at this point. Tommy is initially convinced he's hallucinating because, you know, he's seen Jason a lot over the course of this movie, but a superficial slash wound across the chest makes him believe it's all real. He uses his pocket knife to stab Roy in the thigh, and then, when Roy goes down, he reenacts his famous machete attack in part four and... No. No, wait, he doesn't. He instead just climbs into the hayloft with the others. Roy, of course, follows because haylofts are not slasher-proof, 
and he finds Tommy apparently dead from his injuries and the others missing. We see several conspicuous ropes dangling around, intended very clearly to evoke the ending of Part 3, but that's not what happens. Instead, Pam lures him over to the edge, where a spiked grate is lying on the ground just beyond the doors, which... Jeez, why do they even have that? Why is this outpatient mental institution nothing but a series of sharp objects, power tools, and death traps arranged buffet-style for people to use on the honor system? Sorry. I'm better now. It just kind of gets my goat, you know? Reggie bum-rushes Roy, knocking him over the edge, but Roy grabs the side of the barn and tries to drag Reggie over with him. Tommy wakes up just in time and chops off Roy's hand with the machete, sending him falling onto the spikes. When seeing death that it wasn't just a hockey mask he wore, he had on a full latex facial appliance, which again seems very premeditated for someone who's doing this because he just snapped and couldn't take it anymore. We jump ahead to the inevitable hospital scene where the sheriff tells Pam that Roy was Joey's dad and that all these people would be alive today if she and Dr. Letter had just kept Vic away from the axes. Okay, he doesn't say that part out loud, but it is true. Literally, if this had been a better run mental institution, Joey would be alive, and if Joey had been alive, there'd be like 15 other people who wouldn't have died. Pam goes to visit Tommy in his room where he's recovering from his machete wound, and he pulls a machete out from beneath his mattress and murders her! But it was all a dream. He's alone. Until he sees Jason! But that was just a dream, too. It's just him and the hockey mask that they allowed him to keep for some reason. Pam comes in to see him for real this time and finds the window shattered and Tommy apparently gone. But he's behind her wearing the hockey mask and he's holding a knife. And oh my god, he's going to kill her! And we'll find out in the next installment that that was a dream too, but for now it's roll credits on the end of what can generously be described as a film that didn't really seem to know what it was trying to do. It suffered from a terminal lack of focus and a terminal lack of commitment to being anything more than just a series of kills. Obviously, I don't have to make a decision about keeping it because it's part of a box set, but you know, if it wasn't, I wouldn't see any reason to be completist about this particular flick. And if you agree, disagree, or just want to talk about anything that came up in this podcast, including what you might be hearing as a little bit of extraneous sound at the moment, uh, the heater's going, it's midwinter in Minnesota, I frankly have had to pause about 20 minutes out of every 30 to keep it from going, but at this point I'm just going to let it run for the last couple minutes. You can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror and on Tumblr as at HalfPriceHorror. I'm also on Letterboxd as Half Price Horror, no spaces on any of those, where you can see reviews of all the movies I've watched for the podcast and a list of everything I intend to tackle in future episodes. I do love hearing from people. If you want to look at the watch list and tell me, please, please do this particular movie next, I'd love to hear about it. You can also rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. Again, thanks to Al Apple's weird algorithm, anything less than a five-star review, you might as well be telling people not to listen to me, so it's it's a binary system. Just, just treat it as one. I'm very sorry. It's kind of embarrassing. 
And next time on Half Price Horror, it's time to go a little bit older school in our examinations. It's time to look at horror icon Vincent Price, legendary producer Roger Corman, and one of their famous collaborations, their most famous collaboration possibly, The Mask of the Red Death. See you then.